0: probably every parent's worst nightmare, that is that their child succumbs to peer pressure and is drawn off into certain behaviors or activities that are dangerous and life-threatening and perhaps even enslaving for the balance of their days. Some parents, in order to counteract peer pressure and the danger that it represents, isolate their children. They try to keep them away from others who might influence them in negative ways, might draw them away from the truth that they've been taught. The problem with isolation as a strategy to deal with with the problems of peer pressure, is that it fails to recognize that we don't sin because of our environment. We sin because of our fallen nature. Sin resides within us. And even if we were to run away to a desert island and be all by ourselves, we would not escape its clutches. We would drag it with us. So it is not environment that causes Sin, although certainly environment provides great temptations and can play into sin. Peer pressure is something to be concerned about and to be aware of in the parenting process. But, you know, it's not only children who are susceptible to peer pressure. You realize that adults are as well. You realize that you and I are also susceptible to peer pressure. I just cite some very simple evidence, and that is how quickly fashion styles and hairstyles roll across the country and are adopted by the vast majority of thinking adults. Why is it that everybody dresses in a similar fashion and cuts their hair in a similar way, and that way changes from decade to decade? Where does all that come from? Indeed, there is a certain amount of peer pressure that forces one into these kinds of behaviors. Let me ask you a question. What do you do if everyone around you seems to be participating in a certain kind of activity or behavior and you're, you're not quite certain, it just doesn't feel right, it doesn't sit well with you? What do you do? Or let me ask you another question. What happens if you have succumbed to peer pressure? You have followed your peer group into a certain behavior or activity, and and after the fact, you feel guilty about it. You're not you're disquieted in your soul because of your participation in a certain behavior. You feel guilty about something. Are these feelings wrong? Are they to be ignored? Is there a such thing as false guilt? I want to take up these questions with you this morning and more as you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We're picking up where we left off last week. In Paul's instructions to the believers in Rome, as to how to live free in Jesus Christ. How to, how to live in the freedom that is brought to us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. How to relate to each other in that environment. We said that in this section, beginning beginning of chapter 14, and running all the way through verse 13 of chapter 5, there are six, six major lessons Six major lessons that, that we need to learn and we need to implement so that we don't tear the fabric of the unity of Christ here in this local body. So we arrive this morning at the fourth lesson. It's verses 22 and 23, the very end of chapter 14. The lesson very simply is, do not violate your conscience. Do not violate your conscience how to live free in christ do not violate your conscience but let's unpack that truth a little bit together this morning and and to do so i've i've developed this around three interconnected statements and there appear for you in the back of your bulletin the first one is this that the conscience is a gift from god the conscience is a gift from God. So you look at verses 22 and 23, let me just go ahead and read them here. Paul says, "The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But to he who doubt, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is Sin. You'll notice the word conscience doesn't really appear in these two verses. and That indeed it would be a correct observation on your part. The word conscience is not here in these two verses, although the concept of the conscience is very much in these two verses, and that is what Paul is talking about. But let us, let us explore the conscience a little bit and lay a foundation so that we can unpack what these verses mean. The conscience is a gift from God. But what is it? What is a conscience? The Greek word translated in the English, and it appears 30 times in the New Testament, 22 of them in the usage of the Apostle Paul. So we are very much indebted to him to understand the biblical concept of the conscience. The Greek word simply means the self That knows with itself. The self that knows with itself. That's kind of a strange definition. That would be a a literal definition of the Greek word translated conscience. In other words, a a conscience is, is yourself looking at yourself from the vantage point of someone outside. So it is evaluating yourself. It is looking at yourself, not from the inside, but as if you are outside of yourself and looking in. That is the conscience. That is what the word means. Said another way, conscience is the internalized voice of those whose judgment about us we value the most with regard to our behavior and our motives. It is it is the voice that we have internalized of some person or persons, some authority source or sources. That then looks at us, evaluates us and comments on what it sees. It is not the product of our environment. It is a gift from God, although it is influenced by our environment, our environment very much can influence the conscience. Now, contrary to some people's thinking, the conscience is not the voice of the Holy Spirit, so we need to establish that. It is not the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. We know that to be true for really two very simple reasons. The first is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the conscience can be weak, it can be mistaken, and it can be subjective in its judgment. The voice of the Spirit of God is never weak, it is never wrong, and it is never subjective. So it is not the voice of the Spirit of God. Beyond that, secondly, all people have a conscience, even the unbelievers. And then again, it is not the voice of the indwelling Spirit of God because unbelievers have not the Spirit by definition, Romans chapter 8. Because the, the conscience, though, is innate and universal, we have to understand that it is god's gift to humanity it is god's gift to humanity and it is given to restrain evil impulses let me turn you to uh, back to the left to romans chapter 2 which is probably one of the more definitive texts with regard to the conscience page 1126 <coughs> Where Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He's writing about Gentiles and he says, the unbelievers. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. It is innate and universal in all people, and its purpose is to restrain, primarily to restrain evil impulses. The unbelievers have it here. They have the law of God, his basic moral code. Paul says it's been written in their heart, and that moral code is acted upon by their conscience and their thoughts Either excuse or accuse them based on how well they do against that moral code. And in fact, that really leads us into an understanding of how does a conscience work? How does the conscience work? And it, and it really works in three ways. Three ways. Number one, it is motivational. The conscience is motivational. It urges us to do good and avoid evil. It urges us to do good and to avoid evil. For example, if you'll turn back to the left, Acts chapter 24 and verse 16, page 1119. Acts chapter 24, verse 16. Paul is speaking about his life following his conversion. And he says, verse 16, Acts chapter 24, in view of this, I also do my best to to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men that it is motivational to him he does what he does in order to maintain a blameless conscience before God and be, excuse me before men it urges him to do the right thing to avoid the wrong thing it is motivational in Paul's life so the conscience is motivational for us it is also judicial It is judicial, it is motivational, and it is judicial. That is, it judges right and wrong. It acts as a judge with regard to what is right and wrong. We can see that in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, page 1133. Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. Paul writes there and he says, a very fascinating statement here. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. That is, my conscience is adjudicating my, my words to you. And it is telling you that I am telling you the truth, that I am doing the right thing. If I were lying to you, my conscience would convict me of that lie. So it has a judicial sense. It judges what is right and it judges what is wrong. Now, it is not infallible. It is not infallible in its judgment. It is possible for one to have a clear conscience and yet at the same time to be in the wrong. We won't go there, but you can just mark it down. Check it on your own. First Corinthians chapter four, verse for Paul says there, I know nothing against myself. My conscience is clean, but that doesn't mean that I'm not guilty. Christ alone can judge my motives. So it is possible, the, the role of the conscience to judge right and wrong, it's possible that it acquits you and you're still wrong. We'll talk about that, the implications of it in, in a minute. So it is motivational, it is judicial, and it is judgmental. It is judgmental. That is, it rewards and it punishes. The conscience rewards us and it punishes us. Again, back to Romans chapter 2, where you see it, that the work of the conscience alternately accuses or defends them, Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. It rewards and it punishes. That is, when you do the right thing, your conscience speaks to you and says, attaboy, you did it. That was the right thing to do, and you did it. Good job. And when you do what is wrong, what you know to be wrong, your conscience says, you are guilty. You are guilty. You are a lawbreaker. And that punishment brings great mental anguish to us. A guilty conscience, it steals our sleep. It steals our appetite. It can undo us physically, mentally. It it could drive a person to become insane to escape from the accusing voice of the conscience. By the way, I'm quite persuaded that in the lake of fire at the end of all time, where the unbelievers are cast after being judged at the great white throne, that part of their ongoing eternal torment will be a, a conscience that can not be satisfied. For eternity, it will accuse them and convict them of their guilt. The conscience is powerful in what it can do to us, either beneficially or in a judgment sense. Think of it this way. The conscience acts like a moral librarian. Work with me on this. It is a moral librarian. What I mean by that is that each of us has a moral library, so to speak. That is that internally there are vast shelves in which there are books of law code, values that have been shelved in the library over time. And what the conscience does, like a a moral librarian, is it compares a particular Behavior or thought or action that you either want to do or have done. And it takes that. It goes to the proper shelf in the moral library. It pulls down the volume that relates to this particular behavior. It reads the moral code. It compares it to what you have done. And it says, good job. Or it says, guilty. Lawbreaker. You deserve punishment for this the librarian is active and busy constantly evaluating our behaviors and our thoughts against our moral library now in con- in conversion in conversion paul tells us second corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 that new things have come the old has passed away that is there is a, a new Work of the spirit in which new volumes are going to be shelved in the library. We have a new authority source. It is no longer merely our parents or our peers or our teachers or whatever. It is now the word of God. And the word of God now informs the librarian about what kind of books to put on the shelves and what books not to put on the shelves. And that is a lifelong process that is done in community together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, don't turn there, just mark it down. It talks about coming together in the unity of the faith to a maturity in Christ. Part of that process is a fully equipped moral library. And so we need each other, and the Spirit of God uses you in my life and me in your life to make sure that you have the right books on the right shelves. Everybody has a moral library. Now, problems can arise when the librarian, as it were, goes to look up a particular book and there's nothing on the shelf. There's a certain behavior that, that you have or, or an, let's just say an invitation to do something, and the librarian goes to the shelf, looks and the, and the shelf is empty. there's no book there. That creates a problem for us. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to evaluate this particular behavior or activity. There's no books. It's also possible that books get misshelved, is, that the wrong book is on the shelf. And so the librarian goes, again, same illustration of a behavior or an attitude, goes to the shelf, plucks the book off, but it's the wrong book. It doesn't really speak to the issue at hand. And thus you can get a wrong value coming back from the moral librarian. So we have to make sure that we have the right books on the right shelves. Again, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make sure things are properly filed. Third problem with this is that sometimes there are bad books on the shelves. Bad books. That is, books that teach wrong values. Wrong values. They have false information. The solution to this is, by the way, not to fire the librarian, The solution to this is to get the bad book off the shelf, get rid of it, and put a good and proper book onto the shelf in its place. Again, the Word of God cleanses the heart and the mind. We're being transformed, Romans chapter 2, right? We're being, or chapter 12, rather. We're being transformed into the likeness of Christ, and we're putting the right books on the right shelves. Now, sometimes people feel guilty about things when they haven't really done anything wrong. Our society calls that false guilt, false guilt. And and their solution to it is you shouldn't feel guilty for this. You haven't done anything wrong. So ignore it. Ignore it. But that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. The wrong thing to do. We should never, ever, ever ignore our conscience. We should never ignore the moral librarian. To do so is to dull the conscience done long enough It will actually steer the conscience, at which point you will not be able to hear any longer. And you will have lost a God-given means to hold you into moral restraint. So never, never ignore the librarian. It is not false guilt, by the way. It is actually true guilt. You are guilty. If you violate your moral code, you are guilty. The solution is to make sure that in the library there are the right volumes to establish a God-honoring moral code. The solution is not to ignore the warning system. It would be like an airplane pilot whose warning light is, is flashing, you know, you're losing altitude, you're losing altitude, you're losing altitude. The answer is not to tell the warning light, shut up. The answer is to correct the loss of altitude. And so in the case here, when the moral librarian is saying you're doing it wrong you're doing it wrong you're in trouble you're guilty you're guilty you're guilty is to understand that if you're if what you have done you're not is not really a wrong behavior then replace the book with one that says that you're free in christ to do this so the conscience is a gift from god it has to be properly formed it always has to be listened to Your conscience is not your guide. Your conscience is your guard. It is your guard. It is a gift from God. That takes us back into this text with that fundamental understanding and we can now unpack what Paul is saying here to the believers in Rome. So back to Romans 14, verses 22 and 23. The conscience is a gift from God. Secondly... A clear conscience is a blessing. A clear conscience is a blessing. Notice verse 22. Paul says, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Paul is continuing his address here to the strong Christian. Earlier, verse 21, he said, It's, not, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. So he's talking to the strong Christian And he's continuing his his message to them here. And he's talking to them about the blessing of having a good conscience. What he's saying is that it's good for you to restrain your freedom out of love for your weaker brother. And it is also good for you not to brag about your freedom in Christ. First part, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. That is, keep it private. It is your private conviction. You are not to, to brag about it in front of others. You are not to propagandize others and try to bring them around to your conviction, Paul says. Have it as your own conviction before God. Now, notice he, says, he uses the word faith, and we want to make sure we understand that. If you'll go back to verse 1, you'll see that faith is used again there. Now, except the one who is weak in faith, right? One man, verse 2, has faith and he may eat all things. So it's not faith in the sense that, that it's that which saves us. Faith here stands in as a shorthand for an understanding of what it means to be saved and what our faith provides to us, that is, freedom in Christ. We recognize we are saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, that our behaviors neither improve our standing before God nor diminish our standing before God. It is by grace through faith alone. And so it is an understanding of that gospel reality that Paul captures in the shorthand word faith. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Your use of Christian liberty, let me just say it this way, it neither improves your standing or diminishes your standing before Christ. He goes on speaking to the strong here. And he says, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Fascinating statement. Happy, literally blessed, same Greek word, by the way, that appears over in the Beatitudes, where all the blesseds appear. He says, happy or blessed is the person or the man who does not condemn himself in what he approves. That is the man who understands his freedom in Christ and can stand in that freedom without feeling condemned. Without feeling condemned, without having second thoughts about what it is that he is doing. He fully understands who he is in Christ, the behaviors that he's participating in. He understands that they are absolutely permitted by Christ and his salvation. He understands that Christ approves of him in his use of those freedoms. He understands that, that he does use the freedoms out of gratitude for Christ. And because all of that is true, he is blessed in the fact that he can exercise his freedom without any hint of condemnation at all. He is truly free in Christ. There is an immense blessing, by the way, that comes to us in just understanding that we have liberty. Understanding the very fact that we have liberty is in and of itself a blessing. Even if you have to restrain your liberty for the sake of somebody else. You know, restraining one's liberty, voluntarily restraining one's liberty, does not mean you don't have the liberty anymore. It's not like it's been taken away from you. What it means is that out of love, you have voluntarily constrained or restrained the very Christian liberty that you know you have. And so you can continue to rejoice in that fact. When you restrain yourself for the sake of a weaker brother, it is not that you become unhappy in that. You continue to understand you are blessed to have that kind of freedom and you voluntarily surrender it. Maybe I can say it this way. It's a blessing to simply know you are free, whether you exercise the freedom or not. The blessing comes in knowing that you're free, not the blessing comes in exercising the freedom. The blessing in in the illustration here comes in knowing you can eat meat anytime you want to. The blessing doesn't come in having a pork chop at every meal. You might not have a pork chop for two years, but the fact that you know that you can have one whenever you want one is a, is a blessing, Paul says. It is, it is freeing. It is freedom. Maybe I can illustrate it for you. Last Christmas, my Christmas stocking, I received some $5 gift certificates to in and out hamburgers. I was overjoyed pretty near the best Christmas present that I had received. And I took the little $5 coupons or or gift certificates for In-N-Out and I tucked them in my billfold and stuck it in my back pocket. And I felt great, absolutely great, because what I knew was that I could go to In-N-Out hamburger, have a double-double chocolate shake and fries anytime I wanted. Anytime. Anytime. It doesn't matter where it was in relation to payday. It doesn't matter anything. I've always got a double-double in my back pocket. You know what I'm saying? Okay, That's freedom in Christ. Okay? And and I rejoice in that. I was happy to know. And in fact, in, in a sense, I didn't need to even spend it. I was just happy to have it. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that your your happiness comes not necessarily in the exercise of the freedom, but in the very freedom itself. Because you understand that it has come to you by virtue of your grace position in Christ. And in that you rejoice. When your conscience is clear. When your conscience is clear, then you are free to exercise your, your, your freedom in Christ Without any kind of reproach. You don't have to feel bad about it. I don't have to feel bad about going in and out. I don't have to feel bad that I was taking five dollars that could have been used to buy milk for the kids. Well, not anymore, but you know what I'm saying is my double double whenever I want it. So I'm free in Christ. That's the blessedness. That's the happiness that Paul is talking about there in verse twenty two. So the conscience is a gift from God. A conscience is a clear conscience is a blessing. It's a blessing to have it. We should have a clear conscience. We should we should have a free conscience. We should want to be strong in Christ. This is the proper place to be. This is, this is what it means to, to grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, to become mature in Christ, is to become strong in Christ, to understand your grace position in Christ. This is what it means. Paul himself says, verse 1, chapter 15, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are weak or without strength. Paul puts himself in the category of the strong. That's where you should want to be. It is the enviable place to be. It doesn't mean you just exercise freedom everywhere you go. You do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. People can just get over it. That's not the point. That would be exercising freedom without love, and that would be sin. So it's knowing you have the freedom, exercising it as you desire, but in done in such a way that it doesn't cause your brother to stumble. That's the enviable position in Christ. So Paul turns now in verse 23... And he turns back to the weaker Christian and he's got something to say to them. And very simply, what he says is, it is sin to violate your conscience. It is sin to violate your conscience. He's turning from the strong now back to the weak and he's going to give them a very, very important warning. He who doubts is condemned if he eats. Because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is Sin. Let me put it another way for you. If you know or suspect that something you're about to do God disapproves of, and you go ahead and do it anyway, it is sin. Simply put. If you know or suspect or maybe add to that, or are concerned that something you're about to do, God disapproves of, God might disapprove of, if you go ahead and do it anyway, it is sin. It is sin. The sin is not the behavior. The sin is the disregard for the will of God. That is the sin. It is saying, God, I do not care what you think. I am going to do what I want to do. That is sin. It is, in the words of verse 23 here, not from faith. Not from faith. The sin is, again, not the act. It is the disregard for what you know or suspect is God's will in this matter. This, by the way, is how the same behavior can be sin for one person and not sin for another. The person who is free in Christ person who is free in Christ can, with a clear conscience, participate in this behavior. The person who is not sure that God really permits this, if they go ahead and, and follow after that behavior, then they have sinned, he says. What they've said to God is, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. And in that You have sinned. And notice it says you are condemned. Beginning of verse 23. You stand condemned. The condemnation here, by the way, is not just from the violated conscience. But it is the actual state of being condemned. Now, not eternally, but the fact that you are in sin, you are condemned because you are in sin. Listen to the words of Douglas Moo, commentator, a good commentator on Romans. Talking about this, he says the sin in this case is, quote, any act that does not match our sincerely held convictions about what our Christian faith allows us to do and prohibits us from doing. Anything we do that does not match our sincerely held convictions about what God permits us to do and what God does not permit us to do is sin. When you violate your conscience, when your conscience says to you, I don't think you should do that. I don't know that God approves of that or God doesn't approve of that. And you go ahead and do it anyway. You have sinned. You have sinned. We try to illustrate it for you. You have some friends that call you up. They want to invite you over to their house to watch a movie. Hey, you know, it's Friday night. We're gonna, we're all getting together. We're going to watch a movie. Come on over. And you say to yourself, boy, I'm not sure I should watch that movie or not. I'm not sure. But I really want to. I want to. I mean, I, I want to be with them. And, and I've heard some things about that movie that kind of appeal to me. So all kinds of stuff getting blown up. Young man in this illustration, obviously. (laughs) So I'd like to go. They're all there. They're all my friends. I just don't know. Go or no go? Do you go or don't you go? What would Paul say to you? Whatever is not of faith is what? Sin, Paul would say, do not go. Do not go. You cannot go. Not until your conscience is clear with regard to this. All right, let me give you a more grown up illustration. You have a coworker who invites you over the weekend. An unbelieving coworker, they invite you over the weekend to come to their non-Christian religious celebration. You pick it—Eastern religion, whatever it is. They invite you to come. Hey, we're having this—we're having this uh, celebration here. We really like you to come. You know, you can come to our to our place of worship here, and et cetera, et cetera. And you're thinking to yourself, "I don't know. Should I go or not?" I mean, is it okay to enter into the temple of an idol? I don't know. Go or no go? What's the answer? No go. You do not go. You cannot go. You must not go. To go is to sin. But your other co-worker who is free in Christ understands that idols are nothing and he's invited and he says, yeah, sure, I'd love to go. I'd love to go. Kind of interested in what goes on in one of these places. Is it okay for him to go? Does he sin if he goes? No, he doesn't. There's no sin at all in him going. So for him, no sin, he goes. For you, if you go, sin. That's how it works. That's how it works. And what can't happen, what can't happen is the two groups begin to chip away at each other. Let me give you a very simple principle here. You ready? Take this home with you. When in doubt, don't. Okay? If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, write that down on your hand. Take it home with you. When in doubt, don't. Simple. Simple for determining God's will for a certain decision. Oh, I wonder what the Lord's will in this is. Simple. When in doubt, don't. That is God's will. If you are free, if your conscience is sincerely free, go. Or no go. But if your conscience is bound in this, you must not go. All right. Now, I need to clear up something from last week. Illustrations are supposed to illustrate. They're supposed to illuminate. They're supposed to make truth more easily understood. When an illustration fails to do that, it's lost its purpose. Last week, I used an illustration about dancing at a wedding reception. And it created some measure of confusion and consternation. And I want to try now one more time to make it illustrate rather than obscure. So are you ready? Here it is. Last week, I did not say, nor did I mean to imply that dancing at a wedding reception is sin. Let me say it again. I did not say, nor did I mean to imply that dancing at a wedding reception is sin. Okay, is that clear? Good. All right, that's good. Dancing at a wedding reception is a matter of Christian freedom. It is a matter of Christian freedom. For some people, it is a perfectly valid means of expressing joy and gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ for bringing a young couple together in God's ordained ordinance of marriage. Okay, And it's celebrated by dancing because their hearts are full of joy at what God has done. And that's a wonderful thing. it's a beautiful thing. However, however, that freedom to enjoy the gift of God in this way can become sin when the strong person pressures the weak person to participate in the dancing when they do not want to dance. Do you understand? So there may be some people at a wedding reception who do not want to dance. And it may be that they do not want to dance because of a personal conviction in how they were raised. In their moral library, there's a volume on the shelf with regard to wedding receptions and dancing. And when they go and they pull the book off the shelf and they open it up, the book says that dancing is a sensual activity between a husband and a wife and should only be done in private. That's what their book says. And so for them in that context, if they were to participate, they would be sinning. Romans chapter 14, verse 23, because when in doubt, what? Don't. And the strong believer who is enjoying their freedom in Christ to do that which They are absolutely free to do, and that which flows out of the gratitude of their heart for the fact that God has brought a young couple together. If they pressure their brother or sister into doing something that violates their brother or sister's conscience, then they have sinned, the strong have sinned, by acting in a loveless way. That is their sin. You understand that? Their sin is that they have treated their brother with a lack of love. Because if they really love him, they wouldn't drag him onto the dance floor against his conscience. That's what I meant to say. That's what I meant to say. The reason I do not dance at wedding receptions is I have two left feet. Okay, it's as simple as that. My wife will tell you that. When we danced at our wedding reception, she whispered in my ear the whole time, Do not step on my feet. Do not step on my feet. (laughs) So for me, the easy way out is I don't. Those of you who can, go for it. Enjoy it. All right. There's two two pitfalls here. Okay? There's two pitfalls. There's a pitfall for the strong. There's a pitfall for the weak. The pitfall for the strong is to use their freedom as a club against their weaker brother. To either try to twist their arm, persuade them, uh, propagandize them, and to draw them into doing something that they do not want to do. To do that is an act of lovelessness, and it is sin. For the weaker brother, the one whose convictions prevent them from doing a certain thing, if they act against those convictions, if they refuse their conscience... They do something that they suspect or know God does not approve of. To do that is sin. But the same behavior can be right and wrong at the same time for two different people. Two different people. All right. It's hard to live like this. It is exceedingly hard to live like this. The reason we know, by the way, it's exceedingly hard to live like this is all the verses that Paul had to write addressing this topic. If this was an easy thing, he wouldn't have to write so much. This is exceedingly difficult. You cannot live like this, and nor can I, without massive influx of the grace of God into our lives. You cannot. You will not live with that kind of love. You will not be able to live with that kind of restraint without a massive influence of the, or intake of the grace of God into your lives. And it comes through the gospel as we hear it and believe it in faith. The means by which the conscience is to be educated, that we can live as we should live free in Christ, is to massively take in the gospel and believe it and believe it. We have this morning before us a visual reminder of the gospel. Christ has left us this so that we don't forget that He who was without sin came and willingly died to take our sin. That on His Perfect righteous brow was poured out all the wrath of God the Father against the sin of his people. The bread and the cup, his body and his blood, given for me and for you. So when we come to the table, we are reminded of this. Tremendous reality. You know, we're told to preach the gospel to ourselves. Is that right? We say it around here all the time. Part of preaching the gospel to yourself is to partake in the Lord's Supper. He's given it to us as a reenactment to remember His sacrifice. We're going to pass out the elements to you here momentarily. When we do, I ask you to hold on to them, please, and we'll all take them together. It is communion. We will take them in communion with each other. I also would want to say that if you have young children with you, I would ask you to please use discernment with regard to having them to partake in this special meal. Meal. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11, those who cannot discern the body, that is, those that do not understand the body of Christ and that we are united in one spirit, should not take. If you have young children and they do not understand, I ask you to please have them refrain. I also would say to you that if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, if you have not by faith committed yourself to him and to him alone as your Savior and Lord, then this meal is not for you, and I ask you not to take. This is a meal to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message this morning from the Scriptures with regard to how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of faith. How the strong are to to love their brother in whom Christ is being formed, for whom Christ died. And that out of their spiritual maturity, O Lord, they would voluntarily restrict the exercise of their freedom if it would in any way upset the faith of their younger brother or sister. If it would cause the spiritual ruin of another person, O Lord, that they would say with the Apostle Paul, I'd be willing not to eat meat ever if it would prevent the ruin of my brother in Christ. O Lord, that kind of love is only available through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only available as we hear it and believe it and it is formed in us, O oh Lord. Pour out grace that people can have that kind of love. Our Father as well. Those among us whose conscience is tender in certain areas, we pray, O oh Lord, for them that you that you would grant them the grace not to give in, not to partake of things that they know to be wrong. But out of a love for Christ, that they would restrain themselves. The Lord, I pray as well that they would not remain forever in that weakened condition. But that they would desire to grow in Christ. And when they look upon those who are mature and who are able to live free in Christ, that it would be desirable to them, Lord, and that they would pursue the Scriptures And a reshaping of their conscience, a filling up of the bookshelves, as it were, with the right volumes, that they might totally come to see the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation He provides. Oh, Father, we come together as a body to this table and partake of what Christ has left for us a memorial in which we celebrate His death, His burial, and His resurrection. It's in His name we pray. Amen.